Thank you, Eric and uh, worship team. And uh, greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Bethany Community Church. It's a privilege to worship with you, trust and pray that God will speak to us today. And so I will ask that as we begin, you join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you that though we're scattered physically, we gather now under the reign of Christ to listen uh, to the voice of the Holy Spirit as you speak to each one of us. And we pray, in fact, and indeed, that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking to us and that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to us, that we'd be receptive to that and that you would show us next steps, Father, to take in order that we might be people of hope in this unique season. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's very unique Sunday, actually, a convergence zone in a way of, as Jack has already presented to us, a very difficult week. And as well, we gather on this particular Sunday every year to celebrate graduates. And so I want to say a special word at the outset to graduates and just name in this moment how unique your graduation is in contrast to anything that I've ever seen in my lifetime. If you could pretend for just a minute, all of us, that we could pick our own year with which we would choose to graduate from high school or college. Uh, there'd be a lot of good options out there. I mean, it could be 1969, the year that humans stood on the moon. It could be 1945, the year that World War II ended. It could be uh, the year 2010, the year the San Francisco Giants won the World Series. It could be something meaningful to you. But I doubt anyone would pick 2020, actually. Because as one person said to me recently, 2020 is like the years 1918, 1930, and 1968 all rolled into one. 1918, the Spanish flu that ravaged the world. 1930, the beginning of the Great Depression. 1968, the race riots of the United States. We got them all now. Not in one year, in three months. And so it's a very difficult time. Pandemic. Economic meltdown, racism. No one would say, yep, that's the year I want. But I'm here to say to you graduates, that year was chosen for you. And the reality is that year has been chosen for all of us listening because here we are. We're trying to stay alive. We're trying to make decisions that will influence the rest of our lives without knowing all the information. We're trying to be people of hope in a world where even the most hopeful among us are angry, or tired, or confused, or all three. (laughs) But here's the thing about following Jesus that gives me great hope. There is always a single next step to take. The Holy Spirit shows us step by step that which God wants for us. We take those steps, we, we are shaped, and then through us, the world is shaped differently. So in our current study of Acts, the new shape of things We're here because the church itself was born into a time of profound cultural shift and was called not only to navigate those cultural waters of change, but to lead the way. And it was very important that the church from the outset never be a community hanging on to yesterday, but rather a community forging ahead, but not forging ahead without wisdom, forging ahead according to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so learning how to forge ahead with wisdom is what we talk about this morning. And the way forward for the church is actually revealed through three clear next steps offered in this text, Acts chapter 4, through the examples of Caiaphas, 
the healed man, and Peter. And it's those three steps that I offer to you now. Step number one, we learn from Caiaphas, the next step of letting go. Step number two, we learn from the healed man, the next step of receiving Holy Spirit power. Step number three, we learn from Peter, the next step of clear loyalty to God's kingdom. Let's look at those steps together today. Beginning with this, step number one, learning from Caiaphas. So uh, I will read again from Acts chapter four. Eric read a piece of it. Caiaphas is uh, one who is aware that a miracle has taken place, that Peter has preached, that people are being saved. And then Caiaphas says, by what power and what name have you done this? Verse seven, Peter answers, as we've already heard read. And then Caiaphas and the other temple authorities huddle up. They dismiss Peter. And then they come back and they say to Peter and John, we forbid you to talk any more about Jesus. They don't want things to change. So let me give you the context here. The temple in Jerusalem was viewed as the place with a definite article where God speaks to people. That's where Jesus made his most powerful declarations and invitations throughout his ministry and particularly during the last week of his life. And because of this, the temple religious authorities guarded this space and they guarded who was allowed to speak in it jealousy, jealously. Uh, because the space was representative of this glorious past and leaders wanted to preserve that past in present speakers. So the temple authorities viewed themselves basically as guardians, gatekeepers is the, is the correct word. And so now Peter is in the temple and he's there. He's just going to go, he's going to the temple to worship within the existing system of worship. And there's a man, as we saw last week through Eric's marvelous preaching, there's a man who couldn't walk and he was asking for money and got healed instead. And then miracles draw crowds and Peter drew a straight line to Jesus as the source of the power behind the miracle. And now more people are believing. And suddenly the people in the temple with power are threatened by this movement, particularly Caiaphas. Now, I'm just going to stop and say to you, this story is incredibly appropriate for this exact moment in history because Caiaphas represents power, prestige, and wealth. And it's really tempting to read this story through a lens as evangelicals, whereby we distance ourselves from Caiaphas and we go, yeah, look, look at that guy. That guy is the enemy of Christians. But I'm, I'm just going to say today, if we read it that way, we will miss our calling to transformation. Why? Well, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Was Caiaphas religious? Yeah. And we're religious. Was Caiaphas educated? Yes, and we're educated. Was Caiaphas held in high reputation to the point of being envied by those beneath? Yes. Does anyone envy your income, your lifestyle, your education? Probably. Was Caiaphas threatened because new voices were in the temple? In this case, Christ followers. In the case of 21st century white America, blacks or Hispanics or Asians or immigrants who are viewed in some circles as a threat to existing power structures. Was Caiaphas threatened? Yes. Are there people threatened today? Absolutely. And this last point is huge because it's a historical reality repeated again and again. People in power are threatened when those 
outside the power structure, seek to address the injustice of being shut out. And so people in power then work hard to prevent outsiders from gaining power, often not just shutting people out, but listen, shutting people out in God's name. Read 18th century, 19th century commentaries that explain to us the subhumanity of black people. It's tragic, but this was a teaching within the church and it shut people out of power. And then listen, when this goes on for generations, strongholds form like this. It's like a, it's like a tumor. It's this, it's this big blob of sin that just won't go away. So the stronghold of slavery followed by the stronghold of Jim Crow laws, followed by the stronghold of lynching, followed by the stronghold of zoning and banking laws, followed by the stronghold of voter suppression. All of these strongholds form an ecosystem which itself becomes a new stronghold. And in this new stronghold, what we find is the object, the objectification of outsiders and the declaration that those outside, those without power are less than us instead of image bearers. And when that happens, the outsider is de facto viewed as a threat. And it's happening. And that's why black people have been killed simply in the context of doing normal things like jogging. (laughs) Ahmed Arbery. Wearing a hoodie, Trayvon Martin. Making eye contact, Freddie Gray. Sitting in your car before your bachelor party, (laughs) Sean Bell. Walking home with a friend, Greg Gunn. And listen, when this happens again and again and again and again, it's exhausting. And if you think I'm inflating the application of this text to fit the moment, you're wrong. (laughs) Because Caiaphas' grip on his own power was so strong that he was unwilling to let others in, even in the midst of undeniable evidence that it was the right thing to do. Unwilling. And eventually, this same lust for power would lead to the beating and imprisonment of Peter and ultimately to Peter's execution. When the status quo endows us with power and wealth, we don't want anyone upsetting the status quo. And though you might be offended when I use the word we, that's been part of our collective white history as a nation for 400 years. And if we could learn one thing, a next step from Caiaphas, it's this, let others in. And that begins by acknowledging the sin of keeping others out. Brian Stevenson is the author of Just Mercy, an attorney and an advocate for judicial reform. And I'm quoting from his book when I read here, the history of this country when it comes to racial justice and social justice, unlike what we do in other areas, is like this. Okay, it's 1865. We won't enslave you and traffic you anymore. And they were forced to make that agreement. And then after a half century of mob lynching, it's like, okay, we won't allow mobs to pull pull you out of jail and lynch you anymore. And that only came after pressure. And then it was, okay, we won't legally block you from voting and legally prevent you from going into restaurants and public accommodations. But this is critical. At no point was there an acknowledgement that we were wrong and we're sorry. At no point. 
The shift only came from pressure, only came from legislation, never came from confession and repentance. Always compelled by the Union Army, by international uh, pressure, by federal courts. And that dynamic has meant there is not enough remorse or regret uh, over our wrongdoing. And then he goes on. This is what he says. I'm 60 years old. I've been practicing law for 35 years. I have a lot of honorary degrees. I went to Harvard. I still, I still go to places where I'm presumed dangerous. I've been told to leave courtrooms because of the presumption that I was the defendant and not the lawyer. I've been pulled out of my car by police who pointed a gun on me. And I can tell you that when you have to navigate the presumption of guilt day in and day out, and when the burden is on you to make the people around you see you as fully human and equal, you get exhausted. You're tired. And I would argue that the black people in the streets now are expressing fatigue and anger and frustration at having to live this menaced life in America still after 400 years. And because sin is not individualistic, but systemic, it's our sin collectively. And we need to repent. I'd point you to Nehemiah chapter nine, verse two where the nation of Israel, after rebuilding a wall around Jerusalem, gathered, and it wasn't just a festival of celebration, it was a festival that included within its celebration confession and repentance, and particularly the confession of the sins of our fathers, because their sins are our sins. Don't ever fall into the trap of individualism, allowing you to say, I'm not in Minnesota, not my problem. It's not your problem, it's our problem. And it's our invitation to not be Caiaphas by confessing. And then I have a word of hope for grads. And the word of hope is this. Grads, the odds of you being Caiaphas are much smaller than the rest of us. Why? You have no status quo. You're dead broke, man. You just graduated from college. Or you're you're about to go to college and get get broke. (laughs) Whichever way it works, because you're starting out, your hands are empty like Peter. And those are the people who change the world. People with no status quo. So can I just say to you, be bold. My hero, Sophie Scholl, was writing literature, advocating the overthrow of the German Reich at the age of 23, and was instrumental in helping the Allies end uh, World War II and defeat Germany. And her courage and her voice and, and her boldness came at a very young age, because she had nothing to lose. It's good news. We look to you, new generation, to teach us how to not be Caiaphas. Second, we want to learn from the healed man. Because the healed man shows us the next step of Holy Spirit power. What makes this story so interesting is that the power of this man's healing is undeniable. A, he's healed. B, there were thousands of witnesses. C, we read from the text, he was 40 years old. So at that time in history, there was an old age. And the only explanation was supernatural intervention. So if I take you to verses uh, 15 and 16, we see here the reality of an undeniable, an undeniable miracle, not as something to be celebrated, but as a problem. Uh, when they'd ordered... Peter to leave after this inquiry, 
the council, Caiaphas and his other temple authority leaders, they conferred with one another and they said, uh, what should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to everyone. And then I love this phrase, we can't deny it. Like the subtext is this, we'd love to deny it if we could, but we can't. It's undeniable. Uh, and, and the problem for them, Caiaphas and the temple authority, is they can't create fake news. Everyone was there. They saw the lame men begging, and then they saw the same guy dancing. And when Luke notes the fact that he's 40, he's saying the guy wasn't brought in as a, as a volunteer the way magicians saw somebody in half from the audience, who isn't really from the audience at all, but, you know, is staged. This is different. The locals knew this guy. They knew he was sick. They know he's healed. Listen, God wants to write a story through you that is only explicable as coming from a power beyond yourself. And this might mean a supernatural healing from a disease, as in the case of this man, but it can also mean a supernatural capacity to bless others, as in the case of Peter. Or in the case of uh, white protesters who knelt this week in front of black protesters and confessed the systemic sin, sin of racism and asked for, for forgiveness and then joined hands with the black protesters in beginning to pray for America. It, it, it could mean that following God into the deep end of the swimming pool, even though you don't know how to swim, means that you are being led to do something that is beyond your capacity, that's okay. Because when you follow God wherever God wants to take you, God will provide everything necessary through the power of the Holy Spirit to do in and through you what you cannot do in your own. Because God wants to write this story through you that is only explicable as coming from God. My friend, uh, the late Major Thomas, after World War II, sends his wife to bid on a castle at an auction, and she bids $20 more than she was supposed to, and ends up with a castle. And then through a series of supernatural connections with the German government, this castle is open to hundreds of the brightest and best young German students for six weeks at a time to come for what the Germans called moral re-education. And Major Thomas preached Christ to them so that after World War II, in groups of 200, Germans were coming, meeting Christ, and going back and changing Germany. Supernatural. And people look at that and they say, look what God did. My friend Gahiji in Rwanda, 147 family members uh, executed in the genocide. He himself watching his son die in his arms in a refugee camp in the Congo. And instead of bitterness or hatred, or loathing, or an intent to go back and, and, and kill Hutus, Gehiji is involved in a ministry of reconciliation between perpetrators and victims to this day, and pastoring a church, and has the biggest smile of anyone I know. And if you ask him what his vision for the world is, he draws this great big circle like this. He says, God has a vision for reconciliation, not just in Rwanda, not just in Africa, not just in Europe, not just in North America. God's vision, reconciliation, and then with a big grin for the whole world. Look what God did in Gehiji. And when Bethany is told you can't buy an alley from the city and then it buys an alley, and when Bethany is told you can't build a parking lot for a public school with church dollars and then lease it back, and then Bethany builds a parking lot for a public school with church dollars and then leases it back, when this stuff happens, you go, look what God did. Look what God did when Bethany took just 
spare change from Easter to Pentecost for a couple of years and invested that money in water projects in southern Uganda. And now most of southern Uganda has wells because we, we skipped lattes. Look what God did. People look back at Major Thomas and Gehiji and Bethany, and I hope you, and say this, look what God did. The evidence is undeniable. That's the healed guy. And the desire in my life and in our life as a church is that God would continue to write stories whose only explanation is the power of God. But for that to happen, you must be willing to jump into the deep end even when you don't know how to swim and follow God's next step. And when you follow God's next step, God will provide the power for that step that you need to take. And so you will have a next step like I did. Move to the city, which puts you in overhead or stay in the mountains where you're comfortable. I had to move. Participate in a protest uh, and you're in over your head or stay at home. Quit your job because it's a justice issue to do so and be in over your head or continue your job. Choose a safe road. Keep drawing a paycheck. Speak about Jesus or don't. Speak about Jesus. Be in over your head. Remain silent. Be in control. Listen, God is pushing us outside of our comfort zone. And if we say, I will not go there, we're Caiaphas. But if we go there, God begins to write a story through us whose only explanation is the power of God. There are a million deep end stories written every day, but none by people who've made an idol out of control and safety and comfort and, and padded 401ks. Because the deep end entails naked trust in God and a willingness to let God's story be written through your suffering or your healing, your prosperity or your poverty, your freedom or your imprisonment. You follow, and the story will be a testimony of the Holy Spirit's miraculous power. And then we need to learn from Peter. The next step, which is always a step of clear loyalty. So Peter heals the guy, Caiaphas says, in whose name have you done this? Peter says, in Jesus' name. And we read in verse 13, as the temple authorities observed their confidence, Peter and John, and they understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed. Another story explicable only by God. And they saw the guy had been healed and they had nothing to say in reply. So they send uh, Peter and John away and they confer and then they bring them back. And this is what they say. Uh, they say, listen, um, we command you not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's verse 18. So we're going to let you go, but don't talk about Jesus anymore. Now, really interesting here. They're told by the legal authorities they can't, speak. And Peter's response is that we have a higher calling than either civil or temple authorities. Now this matters a great deal right now in June, 2020, because we who are seeking to follow Christ, particularly in cities like Seattle are facing huge struggles. Everybody uh, has an idea about 
how churches should open and when churches should open and whether there's a conspiracy or not a conspiracy and whether we're being oppressed or not oppressed. One commentator writes about current life in American cities this way. And again, I quote at some length, listen as I read. In place of any broad legitimacy, liberal cities rely for public order. Listen to this on wealth, entertainment, surveillance, surveillance, prison sentences, pot, video games, elite guilt, and low-class forbearance. In, in any city, how do you get people to live well together? What this commentator says is a lot of pot, a lot of video games, a lot of surveillance, a lot of sports teams, a lot of pubs, a lot of concerts. He calls this a decadent but sustainable arrangement under normal circumstances. But of course, these are not normal circumstances. The coronavirus has exposed its weak points. Take away schools, pools, sports, movies, pubs, and suddenly the infotainment complex is, res- is reduced to Zoom and Netflix. And claustrophobia sets in. Tell people to wear masks and surveillance cameras don't seem like such a threat anymore. Close colleges and suddenly the activist cohort and its more radical pupils are set idle. Put cops to work enforcing social distancing and their authoritarian temptations are magnified. And then all you need is one particularly brazen injustice to light a spark. And we all know, not only has the spark been lit, but the world is on fire. What's the church's response in such a moment? Can I just say to you as your pastor, we're not called to a democratic response against our president. We're not called to a law and order response against liberalism. We're called to a declaration entirely aligned with Peter, who said this, foundationally, fundamentally, we belong to a different kingdom. And when the day is done, our decisions are made in obedience to a different king than any temporal power. (laughs) The good news embedded in that reality is that the church never needs to be afraid of temporal powers. And... A quick look at church history shows us that the church has never been limited by temporal powers. I did extensive study in seminary on the church in China. And when the public gatherings were shut down in China in the 50s, they didn't open up again until 1979. And when they opened in 1979, missiologists found that lo and behold, in China, without any Christian radio, no Christian schools, uh, no, no, no seminaries, no, no Christian bands, no Christian radio, no Christian anything, the church grew faster in China than anywhere else in the world without any of the props that we deem absolutely essential, including, hello, buildings. So God's not worried the way we are. Because the kingdom of God isn't dependent on a building. The kingdom of God is dependent on you and I as Christ followers saying, 
We only have one king, and his name is Jesus. And we will serve that king until our last breath. So God uses actually times just like this to create in the broader culture a deeper hunger for justice and intimacy and meaning and generosity. And by the way, that's exactly what's happening. It's happening because economic uncertainty has created a desire uh, for generosity. And social isolation has created a desire not for more sex, but for real intimacy. And, and racial injustice has created this burning desire. God, when will you fix it? As Jack read in Psalm 13 at the very beginning. How long, oh Lord? We're ready for something different. And in the midst of that hunger, God calls you and I to rise up and shine as light in the midst of darkness so that the world that is desperate for hope and hunger and meaning and mercy and intimacy and justice and hospitality and healing and peace and dignity for all people can find that in God's people. That's our calling. I hope we go there. We're worried about opening, closing. We're posting stuff about conspiracy theories. We're mad. Let me just say this especially to you grads. God has a better story than that. That God wants to write through you. And it's for grads and it's for us. In 1974, I graduated from high school, tossed my hat in the air. My dad had died six months earlier. I was going to go be, be an architect. I was taking a little vacation from God. I was pretty happy. It was graduation. I was graduating near the top of my class. I got some awards. I got some scholarships. Boom, 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 good. It's all a win. And then I went away to college. And because of the death of my dad, after tossing my hat and Disneyland and a summer of tennis and eating pizza, like I suddenly, it's the worst year of my life. And it's depression and it's anxiety and it's loneliness and it's health problems. And I'm at the bottom and God is setting the table for a whole new life for me. And I go off to a conference and I hear this, make knowing God the most important thing in your life. And I do and 40 years later, here I am today with you. God has a better story. May we write that story on the pages of Seattle's history. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I want to thank you that you're not surprised by any of this or alarmed by any of this. But this moment in history, 2020, that we would not have chosen is a moment of our appointment to shine as light. Give us the grace and courage to make next steps. The steps of letting go of power. The steps of receiving and being filled with the Holy Spirit so that we're, we're willing to jump into the deep end of the pool and, and relinquish control over our lives. And the step of clear loyalty to one King, Jesus. As we take those steps, we'll thank you, Father, for the adventure that awaits. In Christ's name we pray, amen.